Good morning. Welcome to Element Summer Academy. I'm Mr. Mike Harmon, your substitute for today. Your regular teacher, Mr. Carlberg, called in sick. In the teacher's lounge, I overheard somebody saying something about a vacation in Costa Rica. I don't know. You can call me Mr. Harmon. My name is Mike, but you can call me Mr. Harmon. I'm not into that touchy-feely stuff, you know, like Mr. Aaron. So let's go over a few class rules. I've heard you guys are the best class, though. Come on, take credit. First of all, stay in your seats at all times. If you need to use the restroom, I get it. Okay? No gum chewing. No texting. No horseplay. Spit wads. None of that stuff. Okay? Good behavior. Don't make me talk to you about your behavior. I'm old enough to remember corporal punishment. And I'll give you one freebie. But if I have to speak to you again, it's off to VP Whitaker's office. All right. Class notes are available on the four desks, the corners. And if you need a textbook, the Bible, you forgot yours, there's some in back you can borrow. If you don't have one, you may take one and make it yours. Also, if you have a smartphone, you don't have to turn it off, but you do have to use the app iVersion so you can get plugged into what we got going today. If you don't know how to do that, ask somebody next to you who's more techie. And, uh, but that's your freebie, though. <laughs> and I also prefer Mountain Dew and Lay's potato chips over Starbucks and a muffin. <laughs> so next time, if there ever is such a thing, you'll know. And if you all cooperate, we'll get through this unharmed. Just remember, though, I'm not a professional. Okay. Okay. Seriously, my name is Mike. If you're new, if you're visiting today, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here, and we want to get to know you. So if you would, besides fanning yourself, because it is warm, if you'd take that Connect card in the seat in front of you and fill it out if you're new or visiting, we'd like to get to know you better. If you want information, if you want to sign up for an event, you can do that on this card. After the service and back in the lounge, we have refreshments. Come back and join us for something. And as well, our welcome center is back there. If you need any information about what we're doing around here, we've got folks that would be glad to help you with that. Stand with me, please, for the reading of God's word. Ezekiel 18 and 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thankful this morning that you rescue us, that you save us, that you've given so much through your Son to call us back to you. And Lord, we pray and we ask this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds. You would cause the truth of the Scriptures to sow deep into our hearts. Help us to take responsibility for those things that are ours and to trust you, God, for what you are wanting to do with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the stupid things we believe can have significant consequences on our trust in Jesus. So it does us good to do a little bit of pruning, a little bit of weeding, some gardening in our lives, our hearts and our minds. In John chapter 15, 1 and 2, Jesus said of 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. As painful as that is sometimes, God is faithful to prune, to remove, to cut off those things in our life that limit, that hinder our growth and our fruitfulness. So, do godly parents produce godly kids? Preparing for today, I realize that you may end up being disappointed or encouraged by what we talk about this morning. Maybe both. Well, that's okay as long as we allow God the opportunity to prune and to work in our lives and bring change about. My wife, Deb, and I, we have two grown kids, married, one of them with three kids. That means I'm a grandpa. It's awesome. Um, parenting, it never quits. It never stops. The job's never done. You just never quit caring. You're not, not interested. You don't quit loving. So it's a... It's a lifetime job. And when you have grandkids, you do a little bit of parenting there too. But it's way better than the other parenting. <laughs> we get to enjoy them. We're a whole lot more patient. Things don't matter as much as they used to. Scratch on the coffee table, spill juice, you know. It's, things are different. It's wonderful. And when we're done, when we're tired, we take them home. Best of all. Want to see some pictures? So there's our youngest, Brooklyn, loves the water. And with her, her, young, her brother Noah, and the oldest who just started high school this week, Drake. Awesome kids. Love them dearly. So, who here is a parent? Lots of you. Who here wants to be a parent? A few. A few. <laughs> I scared you off already? <laughs> All right. And who here has... Or had parents. Everybody. <laughs> All right. So either you are a kid, you have a kid, or you once were a kid. Either way, childhood and parenting is a part of everyone's life. And we need to understand that children are a gift from God. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, I have always enjoyed and felt blessed and rewarded by my kids, especially driving that beat-up old car year after year because I had to pay for swimming lessons, football, baseball equipment. I didn't want a new car. No. And then there's those late nights, correcting papers, doing homework with them because they procrastinated. That was a reward. That was a blessing especially after a long day working so that I could pay for piano lessons and braces. All right. Seriously, kids are great. They're a lot of work, obviously. Great responsibility. Parenting, like marriage, though, it reveals who we are. It reveals our character, and it's an opportunity for God to change, shape, and mold us, bringing about joy and fruitfulness. Being a gift from God, children come with great responsibility. We are stewards of these gifts that God has given us. Psalm 78, 4 through 7. Tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, 
that the next generation might know the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So we are to raise our children so that they know God. We are to raise them in his ways. 1 Corinthians 9, 16-17 says, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. <clears throat> but if, I, if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What's Paul saying? Paul had a charge. He had a stewardship over the gospel to proclaim it, to preach it. We have a stewardship to parent, to nurture our kids. And whether we do it willingly or whether we just kind of do it haphazardly and by default, we still have a responsibility. We still have a charge and a stewardship. And this is especially true of you fathers. Fathers is a name that God shares with us. And so parenting is a great privilege and honor. It is a joy and it is a blessing. And we get the blessed opportunity to reflect who God is to our children. Nobody who has kids wants them to end up flipping burgers at McDonald's or to be on Skid Row living a life of addiction. We desire our kids to grow up successful, to be happy, to raise families, to be a part of our society and contribute, to follow God. And so what many of us have done, we've taken the phrase garbage in and garbage out, and we've applied it to our parenting. And we think that if I do a good job of parenting, my kids will turn out good. If I don't do a good job, my kids suffer the consequences and don't turn out well. Parenting plays a significant role in the desires we have for our children. And Proverbs 22.6 seems to ensure us of that outcome. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So let me introduce you to two very real but fictitious families. Any one of our families could be these families. And you may identify with one or the other, or you may identify with both of them. The Pharisees and the Wiggles. The Pharisees, they have three sons. One of them is great. He's doing well. Married. Got a great job. He's a good model citizen. He's an elder in his church. He's doing great. Brings them great joy and happiness. The other two, not so well. One of them is in jail. The other one, he's in his 40s, job number 15, and wife number 3. Very disheartening. He's developed a disdain for spiritual things as well. And his best friends, Sam Adams, Jack Daniels. They never see him anymore unless he needs money. Their two wayward sons have brought the Pharisees lots of heartache. It far overshadows the joy and the pride they would feel for their son that's doing well. It's caused them to battle lots of emotions, anger, frustration, embarrassment, and shame. But most of all, they feel guilt. Lots of guilt. They view their two wayward sons as proof that they failed as parents. 
Now, in contrast, the Wiggles, their wild child, they don't feel the same way. In fact, they're quite upbeat about her. They're confident that she will one day return to the Lord. The values she was raised with, going to church, Sunday school, youth group, camps, faith-based education, they did the right stuff. They did the best they could, the best they knew how. Even during their teenage years, boundaries that were appropriate, careful about her friends, gave her lots of spiritual guidance. But somewhere along the way, during college, the wheels fell off that car. In her senior year, she dropped out. She ended up moving in with her boyfriend and turned away from the church. Several years have passed since then. Hasn't returned to church and hasn't married her boyfriend. Great disappointment, but they know sooner or later she'll be back. She has to. She'll come back to her senses. She'll come back to God. Why do they believe this? They're banking on God's promise that children raised the right way in a good and godly home can't stay away forever. They always come home. They can't help it. God brings them back. He promised. Both of these couples are strong Christians, yet their responses are radically different towards their wayward children. The Pharisees are riddled with guilt and shame. The Wiggles, they feel hopeful. So what gives? How can this be? Surprisingly, their vastly different emotions are both based on the same core assumption, that belief that a good and godly home guarantees godly kids. The Pharisees take that to mean that somehow their home was far worse than they thought. And the Wiggles, they take it to mean their daughter has to come back to the faith someday. Catch me on a bad day, and I too feel shame. I feel guilt. I feel the missed opportunities, the things that I did wrong with our daughter. Of course, she's a great mom. She's a good wife, but she has no interest in God. And so when I realize the opportunities missed, when I realize the things done wrong, when I am aware of where they're at, it pains me. It causes me to feel like a failure. At least the Wiggles have something to hope for. But in the long run, both of these couples are headed down a dead end. They've each bought into the same spiritual urban legend, the belief that a godly home guarantees godly kids. It's a lie. And every lie eventually ends up being a house of cards. It collapses under the weight of reality. The belief that godly homes guarantee godly kids comes from a misinterpretation of a very well-known but widely misunderstood Bible verse, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Many people seem to think this verse promises that a child raised correctly will come back to the Lord. But it doesn't say that. A proverb isn't a promise. A proverb is an observation about life and how it generally works. They're far from universal in terms of their application. Example, the righteous, they're not always honored. The wicked, they sometimes succeed. The diligent, sometimes they lose everything. 
Worst of all, so it feels anyway, the lazy, they get rich. For the Pharisees, Proverbs 22.6 is really saying, not many will depart, but some will. That's why their guilt and their shame is so unwarranted. They may have been terrible parents. They may have been great parents. The choices and the lifestyle of their grown children provide no conclusive evidence, though, either way. Eventually, their sons will have to answer to God for their lives and their choices. And the Pharisees, they too will be held accountable and and respond and answer to God for how they raised their children, but not how their children turned out. Ezekiel 18 and 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Likewise, though, the Wiggles' confidence that their daughter will return one day is equally unwarranted. It's based on anything but God's promise. Proverbs 22.6 says, or seems to say, that they will never turn away, not that they will come back if they do. Remember, it's a proverb, so it's not saying that a properly raised child will never rebel. It's merely saying that they're unlikely to do so. For those who do walk away from the Lord, this passage in the Bible offer no assurances, no odds as to their returning or not. That's why the Wiggles' confidence is so unfortunate. They unintentionally have given the enemy a foothold from which to attack their faith. They've set themselves up to be angry at God because their daughter may never come back even though he never promised. They bought into a lie that may bring temporary comfort. This lie and most others are spiritually dangerous. If we buy into them, we become vulnerable to one of three or all three things that are never part of God's plans. Unwarranted guilt and shame. False hope. And foolish spiritual pride. I've been guilty of one, okay, two of them. All right, all three of them. <laughs> it's not just the parents, though, of adult wayward children who experience this undeserved guilt and shame. It also brings pain and guilt to godly, responsible parents who have difficult children. Maybe you have a hyperactive child or a learning disabled child or an emotionally handicapped child. Maybe his child's strong-willed. We've seen it in Walmart maybe in the church parking lot. Father, mother struggling with that out-of-control behavior of an unruly child. What's our first reaction? We judge the parent. What have they done wrong? How come they're not controlling that kid? Don't let them act out like that. We don't blame the child at all. I'm not saying we should. We may say to ourselves, yeah, that kid's sure a brat. We may be thinking... That kid should have his butt beat. I mean, isn't that what Proverbs says, 22.15? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Tourette's syndrome, Asperger's, ADHD, or a simple case of stubbornness can make the best of homes a wreck and appear in dire need 
of a visit from CPS. One group that gets particularly beat up by this myth is adoptive parents. The culprit may just as well be genetics as it is a home life. For any one of us, there is only so much we can do, only so much that a godly home will produce. So along with this misunderstanding of Proverbs 22.6, there's a other cause of this unwarranted guilt and shame. And uh, many years ago, there's a psychological teaching that became ingrained in our culture and is still prevalent today, even though it's not really held anymore. The teaching basically says that children are like a blank sheet of paper, just waiting for you as parents and for your teachers and for society to imprint on them what we want out of them, that they're moldable, that with the proper rewards and stimulus and input, that they will come out in a good way. The church has unwittingly adopted these views, packaged a rigid set of extra-biblical rules, a one-size-fits-all parenting style. The rules are usually supported by a long list of Bible verses taken out of context. The Bible teaches something quite different, though. While it indicates that we have great influence and responsibility for how we raise our children, it teaches that every son and daughter of Adam is born with a sin nature. We are compromised. We have a disposition towards self-centeredness and for sinful behavior. It's not something we can eliminate with careful control of our environment or even with the prayers and godly raising of Christian parents. Sin nature isn't just some theological concept. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10-12, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And finally, in Ephesians 2 and 3, And we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the feelings of guilt and shame that come from children who are not following, they're unwarranted. Likewise, the hope that some find is unfounded in these unfounded beliefs carry eventual disappointment and brokenness when the reality sets in and the hope is eventually destroyed on the rocks of reality. The dream may still be out on some of our children, but we need to call out to God for them. We need to be ambassadors of Christ to them. We, need, we don't know the final outcome. When reality crashes in and our hope is vanquished, our faith can be weakened, our trust and view of God diminished, and our experiences darkened by the anger towards God that we might feel for failing us. Biblical hope is different. It's not just a hand-wringing, self-driven, faith-motivated hope. I hope, I hope, I hope. It's a place of rest. It's a place of peace. It's a place of confidence that's based in who God is. It's based in what God has done historically in our lives. We have an experience of God's intervention. First Peter 1.21, Through Christ you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 2 Corinthians 8, 1, excuse me, 
2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. Rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul had great confidence and hope in God. Whether he was shipwrecked, whether he was beaten and stoned, left for dead, he always had a confidence in who God was and the way God worked and that he would deliver him. Why? God doesn't lie. And he had the history of Jesus being raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Paul was confident that no matter what transpired in his life, God would rescue and deliver him. Lastly, and maybe the gravest effect on our lives is the sin of foolish spiritual pride. Pride can produce harsh, critical, judgmental behavior in us, especially towards those parents, those families with hard-to-control children and teenagers. Or worse, it produces a sense of self-satisfaction, self-accomplishment, a believed sense of favor with God, or a feeling of entitlement for a job well done. This can be particularly prevalent among those of us who buy into this myth that good and godly homes will produce good and godly kids. Oh, and those are the ones that had easy-to-parent kids, easy-going, compliant. It's not hard to see why we like to take the credit. Parenting is hard. It's a lot of work. And when anything turns out good and well, we prefer to think we had something to do with it. It's because of that hard work, that effort. If we've been told that good and godly kids are the result of good and godly homes, why not pat ourselves on the back for a job well done? I fell prey to this. Our son, he was a talented baseball and football player in high school, honor roll student, and all around he was a pretty easy, good kid. When a good friend of mine, Christian friend, we'd talk about our kids, and he would share the pain and the, the concern over his son that struggled with grades. Not because he wasn't capable, because he wasn't willing. Struggled with his behavior. and The friends he was mixing with were of concern to the parents. It was hard for me not to maybe be judgmental or critical of how they parented. It was hard not to feel a little bit good about what we'd done, about how we had parented, that we'd done the right thing, that the outcome that we were experiencing somehow had something to do with us. 1 Peter 5.5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't want God against me. So I try to humble myself that I might receive his grace. It's so easy, it's so subtle, this turning from absolute trust in Jesus to what I can do what we can do on our own, our own strengths, our own abilities. It comes about what I can do, about what I've done that makes me acceptable to God, that makes me pleasing to God because I've done the right things. I begin to feel self-sufficient, better than others. I become more aware of your sin than mine. And when this happens, I'm putting my trust more in me than in Jesus. That is another gospel. It's not the one we preach. It's not the one we believe. In fact, in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, says Paul says, I'm astonished 
that you so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. We'd never come out and say things like this, but it's what sneaks into our thoughts, sneaks into our heart. We want to be good. We want to deserve God's love and his favor. But anytime we mix the things that we do, our goodness, our behaviors that are right, any sense of feeling that we deserve anything from God because of our capabilities, we've strayed from the gospel. We've separated ourselves from him. And from we're cutting ourselves off from his mercy. In Galatians 5.4 it says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Justified by the law. What does that mean? It means that whenever I try to erect a set of rules or pull rules out of the Bible and try to live up to them in a way that make me feel good about me, that I'm doing what's supposed to be done, that I, therefore, I, it's all about me, I didn't kill anybody today. Oh, yeah, but I did chew out my coworker. Okay. But I also, I work at the uh, homeless center, and I work at juvenile hall, and I teach Sunday school. I'm good. I'm doing the right stuff. My good outweighs my bad. It's a false gospel. It slips in. While we were raising our kids, I came to realize how little I knew and how difficult the job of parenting really is. At times, I felt powerless. I felt clueless on how to win the battle for their heart and their minds and their spirits. A battle that's not to be taken lightly and not to be fought alone. We need God's help. We need the help of the community of faith. When we have baby dedications here at Element, one of the things that happens when we pray for the family, we also as a congregation respond say, yes, we will help. We will model. We will help nurture that child in a godly way. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9 says, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We all have a part in this process. We all belong in the community of faith, have a task. Parenting is challenging. One pastor commented about his teaching series on parenting over the years, and he said that my first series was titled Ten Rules for Raising Godly Kids. Then he began to have kids of his own. His next series, Ten Guidelines for Raising Godly Kids, that changed to Five Principles for Raising, godly, for raising Kids. And lastly, he ended up with Three Suggestions for Surviving Parenthood. There's a book that I'd recommend to parents, grandparents. It's called Grace-Based Parenting by Dr. Tim Kimmel. In the book, he likens parenting to doing a jigsaw puzzle, one of those 5,000-piece, very elaborate. The only problem is, you know, the borders that we all build first, not there. And somebody, when they put the puzzle away, threw in some pieces that looked like they belong, they don't belong. And lastly... We all rely on the cover with the picture, right? The box lid, it's not there. 
That's sometimes how it feels like parenting. Things that don't belong, missing stuff, and no real guideline. Sometimes parenting feels quite helpless. Bottom line, though, is children are not just mindless lumps of clay. Neither their accomplishments or their sins necessarily reflect how you did as parents or how we do. They don't reflect necessarily our godliness. There are way too many other factors that come into play. All we can do is our best. The final outcome is ultimately out of our hands. For in Revelation 7.10, says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is God who rescues. It is God who redeems us. It is God who saves us, not us. For all of us, Proverbs 22.6 should say to us, You are responsible. How you parent matters. And by God's help, we must give ourselves to that task and responsibility being good parents. The Bible makes it clear. Parenting matters. Parents matter. How often in the last 18 months going through Genesis have we seen what happens when parenting doesn't go so well and just the mayhem. Thankfully, God always is in the midst of that. The New Testament also makes it quite clear that passing the spiritual torch on should be a top priority for everyone who has kids, every Christian parent. Nothing says that more than the requirement that leaders have their homes in orders before they do anything in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This passage makes it clear, in God's eyes, our home life is more important than any ministry we might have. Parenting is a tough job. Advice is easy. Critique is easy. But for those of us in the midst of that battle, and like I said, never quit parenting, it's not so simple. Things that sound easy in a seminar, a Bible study, in a book, They just don't always quite apply quite as easily, do they? Not in real life. So rather than being puffed up in pride, rather than being overcome by unwarranted guilt and shame, rather than buying into a faith-wrecking hope that's not based in God, we need to cast aside this myth that produces these harmful responses, and we need to live in the light of the truth. As parents, we have a sacred responsibility for how we raise our kids. But understand this, their salvation is not based on how we do as parents. And we thank God for that, really. Because if it was left up to us, we'd mess it up. I'd mess it up. My kids need Jesus because of me. I screwed them up. I needed Jesus. My parents failed. So we need to be praying and calling out to God to help us parent our children. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When godly parents have done the best they can and they fail to achieve the desired outcome, they need compassion. 
They need understanding. They need help and support. Not guilt, not shame. And when things go well, we need a lot more gratitude that comes from the realization of what God has done. Using us, maybe, but what he has done, ultimately, for us. And this is why every week we come to communion, to remember what God has done for us, what Jesus did on the cross for us. We take the cracker and we break it. We dip it in the wine or the grape juice, remembering that it's Christ's broken body and his shed blood that redeems us, that forgives us, that covers our sin and allows us access back to God. So maybe this morning you realize that you didn't do so good as a parent. Maybe talking about this has just stirred the feelings of guilt or shame because of a child that's wayward right now. Or maybe a hope that you've been holding on to has been exposed to not being godly hope. Maybe you feel like, wow, I've been kind of proud. I've been feeling pretty self-sufficient in my walk with God. Or maybe you're wayward and you have a Heavenly Father that's wanting you back and has made a way back for you. A man's going to come up and lead us in a few more songs. We'll worship in song. We'll worship in communion. We also worship in giving. In the back of the sanctuary are two boxes. We give because God has given so much to us. And I'm not talking about our food, our clothes, our house. God has given us those things, but he's given way more. He's given us his son, Jesus. He's given us a way and access back to him. At the end, if you need prayer, there'll be people in the back. We'd love to pray for you if, if the Lord is working on you, pruning, clipping. Also, after the service, in the back in the lounge, come back and join us for some food. Come back and join us for some community as we worship God in community as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you are a good father. Lord, if we're here and we call out to your son, you've done a great job. You've rescued us. You've redeemed us through the blood of the lamb. And God, I I pray that for those of us, Lord, who feel shame, feel guilt, those of us who have wayward kids and are waiting. Lord, would you be our source of strength and comfort? Would you lead us and guide us to be ministers of Christ to them? Father, would you work in our hearts that we might honor and glorify you in all that we do? Lord, we give you our love and our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.